This podcast may contain explicit language and feel free to use explicit language when you review the gist on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. It's Thursday, July 18th, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. As her father continued his attack on the members of Congress who he would like to run against for misdeeds that he would like them to have actually committed with suggestions of where he would like them to go, White House advisor Ivanka Trump tweeted this. Women globally face significant barriers to accessing financing. At home and abroad, we're working to help women entrepreneurs thrive. Hashtag WGDP, which stands for Women's Global Development and Prosperity Initiative. Slate's Haley Swenson remarked, this is what at Ivanka Trump is tweeting the morning after her dad sent her back rally. She is the embodiment of 1% feminism. Ignore every urgent issue affecting women who aren't like her and keep raising the banner of the lady entrepreneur. Absolutely shameful. On The View, Megan McCain asked. All of you, Ivanka, Jared, because you're around my age range. Mm-hmm. What? Where are you in this? Because if my parents were doing this. Where is she? She is wherever the monsters are. Because Ivanka Trump is every bit the monster her father is. She's not a little bit better because she adheres to more polite norms or doesn't say the horrible things out loud, just countenances them. I want to make clear what I'm saying and what my case is. I'm not simply making the case that she's every bit as culpable, that she's just as complicit. I am saying she is literally Every bit of the monster that her spittle-flecked, sweat-browed father is. Here is my case. Donald Trump accrued status and credibility within his peer group and milieu by behaving as an outsized version of that group and that milieu. Meaning, there was, in the 80s, when he first got famous, there was a lot of testosterone-laden capitalism There was Japanese-phobic isolationism. There was insensitivity on race as acceptable. Well, actually, I would say racism was kind of acceptable. Insensitivity on race was barely noticed. And so what Donald Trump did was he embodied and represented all of that. He leveraged his place among the back-slapping Wall Street guys to gain some standing in his community and then milked it for all he could for venal reasons. Okay, that's Donald Trump. Ivanka's done the exact same thing. It's just that she grew up in a different milieu. She was trying to work a different crowd. She's an Upper East Side scion of the super wealthy who lived in circles that were quote unquote progressive. So meaning their fangs weren't quite so clearly bared. She had to be somewhat accepting of gay people. She had to endorse lean-in feminism. All she did was savvily ingratiate herself within her peer circle, which wasn't her father's peer circle. He was rough and pugnacious. She had her hair blown straight. Hers was more feminized and genteel. But it was the same strategy. She was every bit the opportunist who played the role that she was handed. She has no beliefs or values or morals for Meghan McCain to appeal to. She is every bit the monster every bit the sociopath that she always was. She's not a good person. She's a venal person. And now she is exposed as being in full possession of the Trump venality that is at her core. The Women's Global Development and Prosperity Initiative, 
there is only one woman who must always prosper, even if it's at the expense of other women. On the show today, well, we break from format a little bit, and I think that's okay because it's my format. I invented the format, and the breaking format process goes like this. Hey, Mike, can I break format? Mike answers, "Uh, seems okay with me. Let me check with Mike. Mike, what do you think? Yeah, good. We're going to break format. So I interviewed Senator and now presidential candidate Michael Bennett, and I thought it was really interesting. On the gist, we've had on Andrew Yang and Buttigieg and Hickenlooper and in a non-candidate capacity, Cory Booker. We will soon be having on a bunch of more candidates. But Michael Bennett was interesting. He was substantive. And I think it was a really good interview because I'm not going to say I pressed him, but I did ask him the questions I wanted to ask him. And he gave very good answers. So that's going to be the whole show. It will subsume the spiel. So be it. It is okay. I got permission from myself. And now here, the gist interview with Senator Michael Bennett. Fun fact, you might not know this, but according to publishing industry statistics, one out of every three books published this year will be written by someone running for president. It's a little unfair because one out of every four Americans are running for president. And I have one of the gentlemen with me, Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado. And I have to tell you, his book, The Land of Flickering Lights, Restoring America in an Age of Broken Politics, is one of the best political books I've read because it's not really about him. It's not self-aggrandizing. It's looking at five issues, five inflections points that had a big impact on the country that we're living in. We're going to talk about the book. We're going to talk about his presidential run. Senator, welcome to The Gist. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. So let's start right in, not actually with the book, with the American Family Act, because I love this idea. Thank you. I don't know that it's gotten enough credit. Why don't you explain Uh, what it is, and then uh, I'll say why not even go bigger? The American Family Act is a bill I have with my friend Sherrod Brown, who's from Ohio, and our proposal is to dramatically increase the child tax credit in this country and to pay it out on a monthly basis as a way of dealing with the fact that in America, including in a state like mine, Colorado, one of the greatest economies on the planet, Mm -hmm. but the vast majority of people can't afford some combination of housing, health care, higher education, early childhood education. The American Family Act puts money in the hands of moms and dads and working people, and for what costs about the same as about 3% of Medicare for all and a lot less money than the Trump tax cut, we could cut childhood poverty in America by 40% and end $2 a day poverty in America for our kids. So that's why I've, I, and I appreciate your knowing about it, even. That's yeah. great. Well, actually, this tells me something about you because the, uh, the write-ups that I've read on it said it was closer to 50% and 45 So you've actually, you're the only politician who underplays the impact of his act. Well, I'm the only politician who <laughs> failed to understand that you're supposed to put your picture on the cover of your book. Yeah, yeah. I didn't do that either. <laughs> but also, so this seems like the sort of thing that would be passable in a, in a rational Senate. That, it would cost maybe $100 billion a year, which ain't nothing. No. Nope. But- we spend $100 billion a year on those tax cuts. And and it ain't nothing, but but it is a far more efficient way of dealing with the poverty that than, we, than, than other, other choices people have made. And in a rational Senate, which, of course, we don't have right now, uh, it would appeal to both 
Democrats who are, you know, believe we should do something for the middle class and for kids living in poverty, and libertarians who believe that we don't need a lot more government, and this this bill adds no more government. By the way, it's not just this bill. That's the, the other piece. That's Bennett Brown. The other piece is Brown Bennett, which is a very substantial income increase the earned income tax credit. Mm-hmm. The two of these things working together would be tremendous for working people in the, in the country. In fact, I believe the American Family Act is the most important suggestion that's been made since Medicaid was passed in terms well, of anti-poverty. Maybe it is, but it's definitely not the boldest. And some bolder ones seem unrealistic. But I had Derek Hamilton on the show and Cory Booker, your fellow uh, Democratic yeah. senator, also running for president, has taken up his idea of baby bonds. And this would be, I think, something like $25,000. This would radically reshape the face of uh, poverty, the face of all the economy, but it would, of course, have a gigantic price tag. So my question is, why not go big, go bold, propose that, and then what you get is a version of that the American Family That is such a great Act. question. So if you, re- you know, I know you read the book, so you'll know that the, the United States Senate and the House right now are not places where you propose something bold and then settle for something in the middle. No one settles for anything in the middle. Right. The art of compromise has been completely lost. My approach here is different because what I'm trying to do is build a coalition outside of Washington to force change inside Washington. And that's why, for example, that's why I'm for the American Family Act, not necessarily for Corey's piece, because, you know, $100 billion is a lot of money, as you just said, um, which is what I'm spending already. Uh, it would wa- be $2 trillion, it's, actually. Yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's a lot of money. I yeah. mean, and there is money to spend. I mean, people should realize this, that since 01, we've cut taxes by $5 trillion, and almost all the benefit of that's gone to the wealthiest people. Since 01, we've Cut. To, we've we've um, spent 5.6 trillion in the Middle East. So from the point of view of the people we're trying to help, we might as well have lit that 11 or 12 trillion dollars on fire. So whether you're Corey or whether you're me, at least what you're saying is we need a different agenda here. But I also strongly believe. We have to not just consolidate the Democratic base here. We need independents as well who voted for Donald Trump. So, for instance, that's why I support finishing the job with the Affordable Care Act through a public option, Medicare X is the name of mine, rather than uh, Bernie's proposal for Medicare for All, yeah. which takes insurance away from 180 million people and I just don't think can be sold in my lifetime in America. There's one last thing I want to ask you about this and then I want to move on to the book, which is there is another theory, which is your theory is essentially propose a proposal that Americans will like and will get behind because it will appeal to their reason and you could leverage that to getting it passed. The other way to look at it is swing big grab their attention, propose something with a great name like baby bonds or Medicaid for all. And that's the only thing that's going to break through. And that's the means to get their attention. So in fact, the very reasonableness that you cite as being appealing might be the enemy of capturing attention, given how the media works these days. I think it's really important that we not mislead people about, about the possibility of getting these proposals done. I think it's really important that we don't overpromise. I am not for splitting the difference between two parties' obsolete ideas. This is not some call for lazy moderation. This is a call for building a coalition for change outside of Washington. Mitch McConnell has perfected the craft of building a coalition to keep things the same. And it's a much narrower coalition. It's a much smaller coalition. But when you start out with an idea that, as you said, cannot get passed and implemented in Vermont— 
That is not a place you want to start because it allows Trump and it allows McConnell to say they're trying to take away insurance from 180 million people. They're trying to raise taxes by $30 trillion over a 10-year period. It's actually more than that, over Mm -hmm. a 10-year period. And I know there are people who say they're going to say that anyway. Obviously, they will. They always have. But I think the best way for contending with that is by building an agenda that we're broadly appealing to the American government. This is a time for big moves, not small moves. It's not a time for incremental moves. The American Family Act is not an incremental move. Reducing childhood poverty by 40 percent, or as you said, 50 percent, that would be a massive accomplishment for us and uh, as a party and as a country. Okay, let's get to the first substantive chapter. Uh, That's an insult. Let's get to the first (laughs) chapter in the book that's about policy, which is you talk about the nuclear option and I want to ask you about what you think of ending the filibuster in light of talking about a vote that you uh, deeply regret to allow just a majority of vote to get judges through. Why don't you take me through sure, that? Sure, I bit? think I think the episode which I won't belabor here unless you want me to is basically. No, I don't want you to belabor it. It's but basically you go a story, but it's basically <laughs> yeah. a story of Mitch McConnell being utterly strategic every step of the way, getting himself to a place where he can invoke the nuclear option on a judge that ultimately was a trade of Gorsuch for Scalia. Mm-hmm. That was the trade. And he did it basically without paying any political price for doing it. I argued that it was a huge mistake for us to filibuster Gorsuch because the time we would want to force McConnell to invoke it was when we had a swing seat, which was right. going to be the next seat, and indeed it was. So by the time Kavanaugh showed up, we were utterly defenseless. We were having a fight, but we had lost the fight already when Gorsuch was the one we filibustered. So I'm an outlier on this. I fully admit that. But I think now that we are at a point where Donald Trump has been able to get the most number of circuit court judges of any president in American history, and there are judges that did not need to get 60 votes. There are judges for a lifetime appointment that only need to get 51 votes, who have written racist briefs, who have done all kinds of stuff that in the old days would have meant that they didn't survive the vet. Today, it becomes a badge of courage for the Republicans to say, no, what's wrong with you? Do you not support the president? And so they're voting for these folks. And as somebody who actually was a lawyer and, and has some sense of the what might be lost here, when I was in law school, if you were qualified and you came up for a vote pretty much all the time for a circuit court or a Supreme Court nomination, you'd get 70 votes or 80 votes or 90 votes yeah. or 95 votes. And every time that happened, it reasserted the idea that the judiciary is an independent branch of the government, not a place to be infected by what hopefully is the temporary and almost freaking empty partisan rage that we now see in our national legislature. It was a failure of leadership by our elected leaders today to not work together to find a way to preserve something that generations of other leaders had preserved for the American people. It seems to me in reading that chapter in the book that even though you only uh, had been in the Senate since uh, 2009, you kind of see yourself as an old soul. In fact, you were criticizing some of the newer members of the Senate who I looked were actually not even as new as you were. You were criticizing them for being short-sighted and you were praising Carl Levin as the most uncynical member of the Senate. Is that because why? You have the longer view, you adopted the longer view, how you are as a person? it's, It's a couple of things. One, 
I deeply believe in this exercise in self-government. I have a romantic attachment to our democracy, and I believe that at this moment when China is rising and presents to humanity a surveillance state as the alternative to the way we're organized, that matters a lot to me. And uh, it also matters to me because for me, every day in the in the Senate is a, is a day when I assess what we've done based on whether we've delivered something for the school kids I used to work for when I was superintendent of Denver Public Schools or other kids that are living in poverty and going to lousy schools in this country that they don't deserve to be going to and whether we've made we've done our work for them and almost never have we done our work for them and in a case where we are ripping down the institutions that they should be able to have a chance to push this exercise in self-government into the future, I think is a mistake. And I, I don't think as stewards of this uh, exercise in free uh, of self-government that we should accept McConnell's terms. That guy's on a one-way ratchet of destroying the government, of right. destroying the decision-making capability, because that only helps the most powerful people in America, which, by the way, is why I'm not for getting rid of the filibuster now, as you, you asked the question. Right. Because in my mind, what I think that will lead to, especially when these guys are in charge of the Senate, and especially when you're putting the odds of our getting the majority where you're putting the odds, yeah. then what we're doing is making the most p vulnerable people in America subject to the whims of the National Republican Party when it comes to stuff like Social Security or Medicaid or Medicare or, or, or um, the Affordable Care Act, for that matter. And after I've seen what they've done on judges, I'm not prepared to do that. I'd rather we went out and built, again, a broad coalition of Americans to actually do the work America needs us to do. You were part of a gang of eight that could have solved DACA if the, oh. if your rep, uh, recommendations went through. But as I look at who the four Republicans were in that gang of eight, you have the two senators from Arizona. One has left this Senate, Jeff Flake. One has sadly left the earth, John McCain. Yeah. You have Lindsey Graham, who's maybe left his senses. Uh, <laughs> and then you have Marco Rubio, who literally repudiates the work that he did right. with the gang of eight. Right. So... If bipartisanship kind of worked then but was stalled, it seems to me that it's much, much less likely to work in the present and to hold out a hope for a bipartisanship with the Republican Party as it's currently constituted ever agreeing to a gang of eight-style compromise is just not applicable to the I, modern I want, world. I want to be very clear about this. I am not calling for compromise with those guys in Washington. They will not do it. Yeah. What I believe is that we have to overcome their intransigence. We have to do it. If we just keep running up against a wall and running up against, it's like Bart Simpson looking up at the, I've never actually used this metaphor before, <laughs> Let's go for looking it. up at the clock on the schoolroom uh, wall and every time it hits three o'clock, it bounces back. It, it you know bounces back, and he can never get out. That's where we are right now on this stuff. We and I think there's no reason for us to be here. Let's take climate change as an example. The majority of people believe climate change is real. The majority of people believe that we need to do something about it urgently. The majority of people believe that humankind is contributing to it. In my state, the majority of Republicans believe everything that I just said. Mm -hmm. And yet we have a climate denier in the White House. And yet we've got a, a, a Senate majority that's, 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 got, that's populated with Republicans that replaced other Republicans who believe that climate change is real. Because we have lost, for the moment, the argument on the economy with respect to climate change. It's ridiculous that Hillary Clinton lost that argument to Donald Trump, but she did. 
Well, I mean, they barely had the argument. And you, I mean, it was not, not even raised during the debate. Not even really raised, yeah. but he ran on it. It's not right, like right. he was hiding from his climate. No. It was part of the tribalism that he was creating and the division mm-hmm. that, was, that he was creating. We have to build a coalition to win on climate and not just to act urgently, although that's critical because the next generation needs us to do it now because it could be out of reach. But we have to create a durable solution. Because you can't fix climate two years at a time. It's not an adequate political theory, to use your word, to, to say, okay, we're going to put it in for this two years, and then they're going to rip it out for another two years, and then we're going to put it in for – and that, by the way, is where we are as yeah. in, in our democracy yeah. right now. So if you want a climate solution that will endure, it's hideous that we have to do this, but we have to reconstruct our politics to do it. Now, I've said as president, I would act urgently from the first day with executive authority. But to preserve that executive authority, you would have had to convince the American people that what you were doing was what they wanted you to do. And you were overcoming tyrants, to use the word I use in the book, and you just used to get it done. Mm -hmm. Does centrism need a better label or better branding? I think centrism has a bad brand, and I think moderation has a bad brand. I think of myself as progressive somebody said to me the other day they said you know what you are you're a pragmatic idealist and i said i'll take that Mm -hmm. because i think if you can't make progress at least from the point of view the kids i used to work for in the school district in denver if you can't make progress there's nothing progressive about what you're doing from their point of view right a progressive idea need us to make progress progress. and when you're in a political system we're (laughs) not in This isn't China. This isn't Russia. This isn't Iran. This is a place where you have to convince other Americans of your point of view. You can't, as I said earlier, you cannot skip that step. And for me, that's not a call at all for moderation. It's a call for a progressive politics that builds coalitions, strategic coalitions around the country. Actual progress, not the label progress. progress. To me, like that Woody Allen joke, are you a Jew, Jewish? Are you a progressive? (laughs) Progressive. (laughs) If they're not making progress, how much, how progressive are they? And and I think the scorecard on, uh, sometimes the scorecard on the cable or Twitter or wherever else is kind of more focused on what the press release says Mm -hmm. than what you're actually getting done. Now, the point on compromise, I think, is an important one. It's not, these guys won't be compromised now. I'm not naive enough to believe that they will or that, uh, or that you know, unless we win election after election, we start to make a difference here. But having said that, our system is based on that. I mean, you know, when the founders, and I write about this in the book, when the founders were, were creating this, what was then a republic, not much of a democracy, their view wasn't that we would agree with each other. Their view was that we would disagree with each other. And out of those vigorous disagreements, we would create more durable and more imaginative solutions than any king or tyrant could come up with on their own. Which, by the way, makes perfect sense. When you think, at least, maybe not your life, but when I think about my life, the worst decisions I make yeah. are the ones I make by myself. They're the ones that <laughs> I make not accounting for other people's points of view or for information that I might have acquired during the day if I'd actually paid attention to what was going on. That's how. That's the genius of our system, that enlightenment system that we have. Today, we've lost that completely. So let me ask you a couple of random questions, just things I've thought of uh, as I was researching your career. So the first time I ever heard of Michael Bennett was this uh, 2007 New Yorker article that Catherine Boo wrote. Did you like that article, by the way? I thought it was incredible. She's a great writer. She's one of our great nonfiction writers. There's this part there where you go to 
a school that's supposed to be closed on a Sunday, but a church has rented it out. And I guess the pastor sees you. And this was at a time when you're closing one of the most popular, almost 100% African-American high schools, Manual High School. And he says, my eyes fool me not. Here is Michael Bennett, the overseer of these school changes. <laughs> Boo writes, I braced for from you a bit of mellifluous, marginally relevant oration. Instead, Bennett's flight of ingratiation ended. Quote, last year... On the 10th grade math math test, only 33 African-Americans in the entire district passed. He resumed flatly. The swaying stopped. 33 in the entire city and the county of Denver, Colorado, and only 61 Latinos. This is a fight. So a couple things. One is... as a journalist, I was always told that anecdotes and people are what drive a point home. I remembered that statistic of 33 yeah. for years and years, and I tried to put statistics like that into my work. But first of all, do you know what the number is now? I don't know, but I have some other statistics. Go ahead. Give uh, there was a report that just came out from Stanford last week that says that the kids in Denver public schools are growing so much faster than the kids in the state that it is as if they have the benefit of 60 more days of school a year. Yeah. So, look, we still have huge achievement gaps, but that says something because that's that's literally 33% more school than, than, than we actually have because we think, only have 181 days. I think all the education experts cite Denver in one way or another as a success story, not an unalloyed success not story. Not unalloyed. But, but a success story. And this is a frustration. If we as a country cannot recognize our successes, I'm not saying that people should look at that and immediately fast track into the White House, but it seems like it never comes up. It's a gigantic success, perhaps more so than a lot of the, in a lot of the resumes of a lot of the candidates. If we don't recognize our success is, how is it possible to have more successes in the future? I think it's really important for us to recognize our successes, and I think it's really important for us not to overclaim them either. And and it's also important that this is a fight. You know, look, we've had 40 years of, of no economic mobility for the bottom 90% of Americans. We have, we have the highest income inequality that we've had since 1928. Our education system, I am not casting blame on anybody. Our education system today is reinforcing the income inequality that we have, not 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 liberating people from it. So these are big issues that we can't BS our way through. Right. You know, when the pastor says what the pastor says, you know, that's a moment for him to say what he needs to say, and it's a moment for me to say what I need to say. Both of us honor the people that we represent and this democracy by saying that what we need to say, we dishonor it when we dissemble, when we don't tell the truth, when we don't face facts. And that's not what we're doing in our democracy right now. By the way, Kate Boo, just on that point, I called her up after she wrote that article and I said, that's the first thing I've ever read about the kids in Denver that's not a cartoon. And she was able to show me things about them that I didn't know. They were, they were, in effect, not telling me the truth about, right. you know, our interactions in some ways. Not, they didn't, they, they had no reason to tell me the truth. But I was taking at faith value, you know, face value. And then the other thing I'd say is her book, Behind the Beautiful Forevers, which is about a slum in Mumbai, India, is the best book I have ever read about people living in poverty in this world. And everybody should read it. So I asked Andrew Yang this. He, uh, he agreed with the premise 
Pete Buttigieg punted. I'll ask you, Senator Bennett, would you be in favor of banning or doing away with the minting of pennies? This is not a considered answer. It's a matter of first impression Go from the for gut. me. But on my gut, I'd say, yeah, let's get rid of the pennies. They cost more than a cent to produce. It I mean, seems that like that we could spend money doing something else, like right. the American Family Act. Michael Bennett is a senator from Colorado, and his book is called The Land of Flickering Lights, Restoring America in an Age of Broken Politics. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. That's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader, who are against ending the filibuster, except when I go pretty long and then maybe a cloture vote. Maybe a cloture vote would be in order. Think think about what I'm saying. Cloture. TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcasts. In a day, we will be asking, where is TJ Raphael? Because, you know, she's in my age range. She's not. I'm 50% older than her. But that age range affinity rubric, it interests me. If you would like to subscribe to the GIST newsletter, oh, and I recommend it. I recommend it highly. You get all the shows that we did all week, get the answer to the trivia question. Mike, what trivia question? Well, I'll tell you. Go to slate.com slash GIST news, sign up for the newsletter, and you will find the answer to this trivia question. Before the current election cycle, who was the last Coloradoan to run for president? And before you say Gary Hart, he said this. They can say, that guy is a racist xenophobe. That guy is just so crazy that we could take a more moderate stance. To tell you the truth, that's okay with me. Today on What Next, Mary Harris talks to Jonathan Blitzer, staff writer at The New Yorker, about how negotiations between the Trump administration and Guatemala fell apart, which is weird. You'd think they'd have a great working relationship. Totally surprising. The gist, given Michael Bennett's penny position, I predict soon Marianne Williamson is going to be targeting the nickel. Um, peru, de, peru, du, peru, and thanks for listening.